welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast, where we aim to be as good at the human side of healthcare as we are at the clinical side of healthcare. My name is Chris Desmond. I'm a physiotherapist who's fascinated by how we can better help the person with the problem. Join us as we learn how to connect better, how to show up better, and how to understand our patients and ourselves better. Welcome to the Art of Healthcare show today. Uh, This is where we're joined by experts to help us get better at helping the person with the problem. Today, I'm joined by Golnaz Tabibnia. Um, Golnaz is an assistant research faculty at the University of California, Irvine. Um, She got her PhD at UCLA uh, and was an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University. She's really interested in effective neuroscience, self-regulation, decision-making, clinical neuroscience, addiction, and resilience. And today we're going to be chatting about resilience and the neuroscience of resilience. So Golnaz, thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to talk with you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. My first question for you, and... What I usually ask people is, is why are you interested in the art side of healthcare? But I, I guess, um, why, why were you drawn to neuroscience and why were you drawn to kind of the, the neuroscience of resilience in particular? Good question. Um, so the reason I was drawn to the brain was because it seems that there are insights to be had about human behavior. So by understanding the machinery, maybe we can understand the function a little better. Um, So I think that by, we can have insights from brain science into how we can improve human well-being and mental health. Um, And so hopefully I can give some examples of that when uh, we talk about the neuroscience of resilience today. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And I think kind of the, the longer that I've been working as a health professional, the more interested I am in um, the neuroscience and the, the psychology of how the brain affects, affects everything. Um, was that something that you'd been fascinated by from a young age? Or what, what, what really sparked that for you? <laughs> I've asked myself that same question. I mean, I can uh, date it back to at least sixth grade when we had a school assignment of making a personal shield and then in the shield is supposed to represent the things that you value or that are important to you and I remember one of the four quadrants of my shield was uh, a human brain with a key because I wanted to have the key to the human brain to understand how the brain functions Um, but I guess that was probably rooted in just my fascination with people like what makes us act and think and feel the way we do and um, how can we improve our experience and, you know, reduce suffering and, and improve well-being? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's a, that's an awesome story. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, and why resilience in particular? I, th- I guess there's a lot of areas that you can look at from a neuroscience perspective. Why, what fascinates you about um, personal resilience? So there, I mean, I, to be fair, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in emotions broadly, mm. and um, resilience has become a topic of great interest in recent years, and this the, predates the pandemic, I mean, even before mm. all of this stuff. Um, and a colleague of mine 
a couple of colleagues, actually, two separate colleagues were interested in resilience. And sometimes, but just by mere exposure, the things we get exposed to, we get interested in, um, kind of drew me in, in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're right. I think what's the, what's the quote? You're the, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I guess that's, that, that comes to what you're academically interested in as well. <laughs> I love that quote. Um, <laughs> Golnaz, so the, what we want to talk about today is, um, is your uh, effective model, model of neuroscience and building, building resilience in people. Um, and uh, I, I've recently read it, and yeah, it, w- it was awesome. Um, so thank you for putting it out into the world. Firstly, but <laughs> uh, what you what people often talk about with resilience are the the concrete strategies. It's the um, it's the breathing. It's the gratitude. It's the the mindfulness. Um, at times, it's jumping into a cold bath full of full of ice, um, that, which are all great strategies in terms of building resilience. But I know that when you started looking at it, you you started to look um, also at the pathways um, that each of these strategies encompassed, and you you found th- well, you you came up with three different pathways of that led to resilience can you can you talk a little bit about what those pathways are how you identified them and um and maybe what areas of the brain are initiated in each of those different pathways sure yes i'd be happy to so um to give some background on how i kind of discovered or, or came upon this viewpoint or this framework um, I was interested. So like you said, there are all these strategies out there that we have for improving our resilience. And, and I'm using the word resilience here really loosely, like very broad to encompass just mental health and uh, wellness in people who are completely healthy, but just, just wellness in general, whether or not uh, there's kind of adversity. So I'm, I'm using the term really broadly. Um, but so like you mentioned, there's there's so many different strategies. And uh, I, by, if we were to pour into the literature, there's like maybe 25 or 30 different evidence-based strategies where um, there's decent empirical evidence that these strategies are effective, either in the short term or the long term. And then um, of these strategies, uh, well, of all the strategies that we have, about 25 to 30 of them have been studied from a neuroscience perspective. So we have had the opportunity to scan people's brains while they engage in these uh, strategies or immediately after they've engaged in it or something like that. So we have, have had the opportunity to study the neural mechanism that underlies the implementation of these strategies. And so I was curious if by looking at the neuroscience of these all these different strategies, if we might happen upon some pattern uh, or maybe find some common underlying pathways, like what is the uh, least common pathway? What are the, the really key components that help us get to resilience? Um, and so in doing so, like you said, I, it, it kind of became obvious. It just popped out at me. Like I didn't go into it with a theory. I just was curious. I was looking into the data existing data and this thing popped up, this pattern popped out at me where there, there seemed to be three neural pathways. So all these 30 different strategies activate at least one of these pathways. And so um, I'll just go over them one by one. 
and maybe give a couple of examples of each. So the most common and the most well-known pathway that people have probably heard of is what I like to call the distress pathway. So our networks in the brain and body for dealing with stress and other negative experiences. And so the area of the brain that is most well-known for processing negative emotions, like fear in particular, is the amygdala. Um, and so whenever we're in a stressful situation, activity in the amygdala goes up, and then the amygdala recruits our various stress responses, our uh, fight or flight autonomic response. So that's our like sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, which is pretty fast. It, the amygdala can also recruit our slower hormonal system. Um, so that's the chemicals that get released into the bloodstream. So that's a little bit slower, but we, uh, we have a stress response that goes through that pathway. Um, so this distress pathway that I'm talking about refers to the amygdala and the fight or flight system and the uh, hormonal uh, stress system. The, it's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis for your listeners who are, who are in, in this line of work. Um, so whenever these networks are overly active, um, in general, so overactivity in these networks is associated with uh, poor well-being, so with uh, some mental illness outcomes like depression or anxiety. So mood and anxiety disorders in particular are associated with heightened activity in this network. Um, and then conversely, medications that reduce hyperactivity or reduce activity in these networks tend to reduce these kinds of symptoms. Um, so, but, but so the good news is we have non-pharmaceutical interventions at our fingertips that help us reduce the activity here. Mm -hmm. And so these are the strategies that I talk about in the reducing the negative pathway, um, down-regulating the negative pathway. And uh, examples of these are, so obvious ones are like cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy. These therapies not only reduce hyperactivity in the distress network, but they also uh, amp up activity in the prefrontal cortex. So the part of our brain that helps us control our feelings and our actions and um, the regions that we need for regulating our stress. Um, other strategies in, in this category, I guess I'll, I'll mention the one big one. Um, it's, it's called cognitive reappraisal uh, or reframing. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll explain that in a second, but this is uh, known as kind of one of the most effective emotion regulation strategies we have. And so the idea there is that you reinterpret a negative experience in a way that makes it less emotional. Uh, so for instance, maybe we get a negative review from a supervisor or from our patients. Um, and we, one way to interpret that is, oh, I, I, I was terrible in, in the way that I handled that situation. Or some people catastrophize and, and go even a step further and they say, oh, I must be a terrible practitioner or, you know, I'm no good. But there are alternative ways of, strat of interpreting or, or framing this same experience, which make it less aversive to us, less stressful. So for instance, that same experience could be reinterpreted as maybe the patient was having a bad day or, or maybe, you know, I didn't do the best that I could in that particular circumstance because of the circumstance I was in or something like that. Um, and uh, and, and I, there's uh, other ways of reframing as well that maybe I'll, I'll come back to when I talk about the other pathways because mm. it, it kind of all ties in. Yeah, and I think that's, that, that pathway that 
the distress pathway is probably the one that we see show up the most within our patients, that, that people come to see us um, uh, with a health challenge and they're in a distressed state. So there, there is obviously some overactivity of this uh, this pathway going on. So I think it's it's probably the one that we're, we're maybe the most familiar with, I think, as health professionals. Um, and I really like the examples that you that you gave there, especially the, the you called it cognitive reframing. Cognitive reappraisal. Reappraisal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's <laughs> it's kind of the shift of shifting perspective around the the meaning associated with an event. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Reinterpreting or reframing an event. Mm. And I, I want to get into the other pathways, but that's really challenging sometimes when you are in a distressed state. Um, there's emotions are running high and the, the one way that you see things is often the, it's really hard, hard to widen your viewpoint. Do you have any, are there any practical suggestions that you have for, for being able to do that? So you can, you can step away and look at, look at the problem or look at the event from a different angle. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up this really important point about how when we are under stress, it's really hard to get out of that state mm. and think in a different way. And neuroscientifically, this makes a lot of sense. So our amygdala pathway evolved so that it shuts everything down and hones our attention on, on the threat that, at hand. Um, now, it so happens in modern life, a lot of things seem like a threat, but they're not really like the life or death situation that, that we think they are. Um, and so, uh, in, indeed, high, uh, high levels of stress do diminish the capacity of our prefrontal cortex to function normally. So it's the irony of stress where it... Um, compromises the function of the very brain networks we need to cope with the stress itself. Mm. So um, a couple of things I have to say about that. <laughs> I think um, it helps to kind of understand, I mean, for me, I guess maybe I'm biased because I'm a neuroscientist and I think like everybody should know about the brain because it's so helpful. Uh, but but I'll, I'll share it and, and maybe um, your listeners will, will find it helpful. So as it happens, um, a little bit of stress is actually good. So mm. manageable stress is actually a good thing because in the process of managing that stress and coping, or at least even attempting to cope, even if the coping is not like perfectly successful, there is evidence showing that um, attempting to cope helps change our neural connections um, in the pathway that we know is important for coping. So pre those prefrontal neurons that we know are important for coping and, and the amygdala change the way they communicate and they're connected with each other um, as a result of the coping. So for instance, um, rats that are given the opportunity to um, cope with a stressful situation, those rats that attempt to cope show this kind of neuroplasticity in their brain and the prefrontal cortex mm. and the amygdala. And importantly, they cope better with subsequent stress. Uh, even if that subsequent stress is different from the original stressor that they encountered. So this learned uh, coping skill is transferable. It translates to new circumstances. 
So I would suggest that when we encounter a stressful situation, we empower ourselves by, by thinking about it as an opportunity for growth, as an opportunity mm. for strengthening those coping neurons or those coping connections in the brain. This is something I tell myself, like when there's something difficult or overwhelming <laughs> happens, you know, I tell myself, okay, like, you know, we're going to get through this and, and getting through it. It's like what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It, it, it is true. Um, there's lots of evidence supporting that claim. Yeah. And I, and I think also like as, as individuals and kind of probably for ourselves as health professionals, rather than for our patients, going out and actively seeking out a little bit of stress, stress is really valuable um, to proactively strengthen those, those pathways. And I mean, I, I think about it, like, obviously I'm a, physiotherapist and my, my background is muscles and tendons and those kind mm -hmm. of things so it's just the same as going and lifting weights so you need yeah. to put some stress through the mu muscle so that it adapts and then it gets stronger and then you also have that carryover effect of like I can just do bicep curls in the gym and lift some weights but also that's kind of helpful for me when I pick up my three-year-old son um, and it's going to be more helpful for me as he gets bigger and, and older. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's, there's carryover effect, and, and I guess the kind of the, the concepts um, that that a lot of people that come in and see us um, are familiar with is like, okay, I need to put a bit of stress on my body so I get stronger. Um, they're less open to thinking about, okay, I need to put a little bit of stress on my on my brain so that gets stronger as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you get this like um, added benefit of acquiring uh, another uh, factor that we know boosts resilience in this pathway. And it's what psychologists call, call self-efficacy, which mm -hmm. is basically self-confidence, like, like believing that you can cope. So as you amass evidence that, yes, you can cope, like you, if you remind yourself that you have been through difficult times before, you can do it, like that boosts your confidence that um, you can cope. So having self-efficacy, having confidence that you can cope can help you cope better as well. Mm. Gonaz, was there anything else you want to bring up on the, on this pathway before we jump onto the next one? I think it's a good, good time. Maybe I'll just put, say that this idea of stress making you stronger, it's called stress inoculation in case people mm. want to kind of look up the literature on there. There's a, there's a really interesting, rich literature on uh, stress inoculation. Mm. Cool. I've just written that down so I can go and look it up afterwards. <laughs> All right. So it's like a vaccine. I guess the idea is it's, it's like a vaccine. Like mm. uh, a little bit of it, a little bit of the virus helps you build up uh, resistance or resilience towards the the big thing. So a little bit of it makes you stronger. Sorry. Yeah. And actually, maybe <laughs> on that point, while while we're while we're still looping around here. <laughs> too much of it for too long is right. potentially not beneficial. I guess like from an overtraining perspective with your body, if you're lifting heavy weights or if you're running long distance consistently, you kind of, you build, you, you don't have enough recovery time to actually um, continue to improve. So you start to break down. Is that something that's similar that happens in the brain I as well? Yeah, so that's a more complicated question to answer, but but there is truth to that, right? So it, it does need to be in that kind of sweet zone where too much of it then becomes overwhelming and then it's counterproductive because then you get the opposite of self-efficacy. Then it beats you down. It's like, oh, I can't cope anymore. 
Um, so yeah, it's, there's so an we could probably talk for four and a half hours on that <laughs> yeah. easily. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. Similar concept. It's not quite true, but it's, it's kind of the same. We'll, we'll leave yeah. it there. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So pathway two, can you tell me okay, about that so, one? So pathway one was down-regulating the negative. Uh, pathway two is up-regulating the positive. Um, so this one involves brain regions um, that are kind of commonly referred to as the reward networks or uh, mesostriatal reward networks or dopaminergic reward networks. So these are brain regions that, um, among other things, respond to uh, things that are pleasurable or desirable. So if you see a picture of a loved one, neurons in, or, or regions in, in this network get activated or chocolate, um, if you like chocolate, um, or winning money, that sort of thing. And when this network is hypoactive, so when there's not enough activity in this network, it's associated with anhedonia, which is this lack of interest in things that would otherwise interest you. So it's, it's like, um, related to depression. It's so too little activity in this network is also related with depression and PTSD. Um, Conversely, stimulating neurons in this network uh, helps resolve those, those symptoms. Uh, so it has an antidepressant effect. Of course, again, you know, you want to be in that sweet zone because stimulating neurons in this network too much can also be maladaptive. So like really addictive drugs hijack this network and they feel really good, uh, but then it's not adaptive. It makes other things break down. Um, but uh, in terms of strategies that uh, act, can increase activity in this network, not to the extent of addictive drugs, there's very, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything other than addictive drugs that, that get you way up there, um, which is a good thing because it, it, it would be debilitating. Um, but uh, one huge one is, is social connectedness. Social support mm -hmm. is so important for resilience and well-being. And this goes both ways. It's not just having social support, but also giving it. So generosity activates this network. Um, compassion and um, uh, cooperation, being treated fairly, uh, all of these things that help us feel part of a community. Um, it, uh, gratitude, being grateful for what we have activates this network. But other important factors that you actually alluded to earlier uh, sleep and exercise, they're both huge, not only for physical health, but also for mental health and well-being, um, and also for um, prefrontal and cognitive functions that are important for coping. So all of those strategies that we talked about in the previous network, uh, many of them require the prefrontal cortex to, to function properly. Mm -hmm. And so sleep and exercise help you strengthen those uh, capabilities. Yeah, I can I can attest to that. My <laughs> I've got two little kids, and sleep is is fleeting at times, and <laughs> and I, I I can always tell the day is that my prefrontal cortex isn't firing quite as well because I'm never quite sure what I've said to someone. <laughs> like there's there's things going on in my head but i'm never quite sure if they've come out exactly the same way as as what i've said and it's it's probably made me a slightly better health practitioner as well because it means that i check in with my patients more often <laughs> <laughs> because i'm not i'm not quite sure but yeah it's 
it's massive, isn't it? Um, I have some bad news. It doesn't go away after the kids sleep well. I mean, maybe that's just my experience, but I'm convinced that there is such a thing as mom brain and dad brain. Just something happens and we don't function quite to our top yeah. capacity. Okay. After oh, you've, you've just kicked me in the guts here. I was, <laughs> I was hoping that when, when our youngest would sleep better, that it would, uh, it would start to dissipate a wee bit. It, it gets better. Yeah. <laughs> just maybe never goes back quite to where it was before. Or it could just be regular aging. I don't know. Mm. And so if we're, if we're looking to, if we're looking to try and facilitate this, um, these neurons in ourselves so it's 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 the po- uh, putting positive things um and bringing that into um into our da- into our daily routines um when we're thinking about it from trying to facilitate it in someone else as well it's i guess it, it's helping them to identify um positive steps that they can that they can take and that they can fit into their life yeah, so this is getting a little bit outside my area of expertise in terms of um, passing it on to someone mm. else. Um, but I, I suspect that's one way. I mean, another way is just the, the rapport that we build maybe with mm. or, or, or that practitioners build with their patients that itself can have value. Yeah, I, mean, um, I guess that you, you're right. That's a, that's a social social connectedness and actually some people that come and see me I, I i've asked them recently i was like why do you why do you come and see me and they their answer is you kind of understand <laughs> what i what i'm doing and what i'm what i'm trying to get to and i feel feel a connection there um yeah and and it's one of those things that i think is multi-pronged like um it, we're, we're using more than one of the routes so it's the reward route um, mm. through the social connection, but also probably a little bit of the down-regulating the negative route because um, uh, it's very similar to emotion disclosure. So this is another one of those strategies we have that down-regulate the negative. So just talking about the things that bother us or even journaling them privately for ourselves, just putting it into words seems to have a beneficial effect and seems to dampen the distress network. Mm. So the fact that they can have that trust in you and then share that. I, I think it, it, it creates a kind of a two pronged um, resilience building route. Yeah. Yeah. And if all of <laughs> all else fails, you could just put up a picture of their, their significant other while in front of them while they're doing some squats. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, Golnaz, um, I'm fascinated actually by the by the third one, um, the third pathway, the transcending the the self, I guess we're probably um, as health professionals, we understand the distress pathway and we know that we should be doing good things to, to upregulate the positive, but can you explain that the transcending the, the self pathway? Sure. Yeah. So I like to think of this third pathway as like rising above the other two pathways. Mm. You're rising above wanting the good and wanting, not wanting the bad. So you're just rising above the self. and um, I'll talk about the network first and then get into the strategies. So um, the network we're talking about here is called the default mode network. And it's a group of brain regions that tend to be active together when we engage in self-reflective thinking, when we're thinking about ourselves, 
um, maybe about our past or our future. Um, but interestingly, it also seem, gets activated when people are told to do nothing. So when people are just lying awake in a scanner, you see this network getting activated, which suggests to us that maybe that's what we, so maybe when we're lying there doing nothing, quote unquote, we're really thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about kind of what happened in the past, maybe making a shopping list, planning for the future. Um, I mean, this network is also involved in thinking about other people as well. So that complicates the picture a little bit, but uh, self-reflection definitely is associated with the default mode, hence the name default mode. So our default is to like think about ourselves. And this is obviously adaptive. Like we want to be able to sort sort out our plans and learn from the past. And so replaying the past is adaptive to a degree. But often uh, what ends up happening is that we get in this loop of repetitive negative thinking called rumination or repetitive sort of repetitive, repetitive negative thinking about the past called rumination or repetitive negative concern about the future called worry. Um, and so both of these things are maladaptive. And so when there is heightened activity in the default mode um, that's associated with um, anxiety disorders, with uh, addiction, schizophrenia as well. Uh, and conversely, interventions that reduce hyperactivity in this network tend to resolve these symptoms. Mm. And so non-pharmaceutical ways of reducing activity in the network, a very well-known one is practicing mindfulness. So this practice of focusing attention in the present moment instead of the events of the past or the concerns about the future. So just like really uh, becoming present. Uh, of course, mindfulness um, has its effects through other pathways as well, but uh, the default mode is definitely one of them. Um, having purpose in life, like a larger goal that we're striving towards. Um, a lot of people get this through religion is also in this pathway. Being out in nature, being exposed to nature. Um, and recent evidence is suggesting that perhaps also the experience of awe. Um, so mm. this feeling of experiencing something larger than ourselves or something so grand that it's beyond comprehension. Uh, for instance, witnessing childbirth or um, uh, witnessing a magnificent work of art or my, one of my favorites, contemplating the vastness of the cosmos. Mm. Uh, these things that kind of lift you out of your own head and help you see the larger picture. And uh, it has an effect of diminishing yourself, but in a generally in a good way. Mm. Um, maybe yeah. I'll pause there. Since yeah, I know we're, yeah, I was, I was taking the rubbish out. Yeah, I was taking the rubbish <laughs> out the other night and I was coming back down. I just looked up at the stars and it was, it was one of those moments of war. It was, holy shit, I'm, there's so much out there. I'm so tiny. Yeah, and then way. your problems, yeah, become yep. tiny too. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's um, it's, uh, and I guess mindfulness probably plays a part in this as well. Is that there's so many opportunities day to day to have a moment of awe that sometimes we mm -hmm. just push to the side as well. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here in New Zealand. You're in California. <laughs> I don't know how it exactly works, but like there's electrical signals going around all over the place and we're having this conversation in real time, which is incredible. Like totally. it's it's amazing. <laughs> like 
um, there's just those little things. Um, Someone has made this pen that, and they put ink in there and it clicks and I can kind of go and write a whole, a whole lot of stuff. There's, there's, there's so many opportunities for awe that we, that we just push to the side. And I guess maybe we get too wrapped up in our default mode network that we, we, um, that we're not, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? my prefrontal cortex isn't firing particularly well yeah. word finding difficulties and um, that we're not um that we don't notice them yeah mm. I, I, and actually nick nick hannah asked me to ask you this question what practices do you put in your day to to fire up this pathway oh this particular pathway this particular pathway so on days that I can, I do try to do 10 minutes of mindfulness. Um, I do also try to get the exposure to nature um, and try to incorporate all into that. Mm. Um, let me see if I'm forgetting anything. And yeah, so I think there, yeah, all is playing a bigger and bigger role, it, it seems to me. So um, my children are, are into nature videos now and for a while we were all it, it included looking at cosmo look, looking at the the universe like uh, natural national geographics universe videos and it just blows my mind and it lingers like that uh humbling effect lingers um at least to the next day so i would include that in the category of kind of uh reducing the or transcending the self mm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I took my I took my boys up to the park uh, a couple of days ago, and it, this is this is a really awesome park because it's surrounded by by bush here in New Zealand or by by forest for um, the listeners that aren't in New Zealand or Australia, and just going there and being like in this playground while while my kids are playing, surrounded by by nature with the birds flying around, ridiculously relaxing. <laughs> I just felt like I don't know. I felt like someone had put like a really comfy blanket over me um, <laughs> at the time, and I just felt felt safe and and relaxed. Um, and and the carryover effect after that was yeah. was really really cool as well. Um, I, may I add one more mm. to, to that? I think a lot of listeners might identify with this one. So being in a state of flow is is another way to reduce. The, to, to transcend the self. So the state of, so that's the being in a state of flow, it, it refers to this experience that some of us probably have had, many of us have had, where you're engaged in a task that requires a lot of skill. The task is challenging, uh, but it so happens that the challenge and the skill are kind of a right fit for each other. So the, the skill and the challenge are at the same level so that you're neither bored nor, you're, nor are you overwhelmed by how difficult it is. So it's just in that right zone where you're focused and people describe kind of losing a sense of their selves, losing um, a sense of time, and they're just in the flow. They're in the moment. So for those of us who practice things that we're passionate about, that we're skilled at, so for instance, if we play a musical instrument, um, I think that's one way to get there. Or if we um, are an athlete, a skilled athlete, and, and we, we engage in that, that's another way. Uh, Even if you're there. not a skilled athlete, like I've had, yeah. I've had <laughs> moments of flow um, playing, playing sport before as well. Yeah. 
Mm, awesome. So kind of the, the three the three major major pathways. So down down regulating the negative, up regulating the the positive and transcending transcending the, the self. Um, all of which have different um, different neural pathways that they activate in the brain. And some of these strategies that we've talked about, as you said, activate multiple different ones. Um, but I guess as for for the people listening, as health health practitioners, like this is great for for yourself to to help with your own resilience, but also thinking about resilience from your your patient's perspective. Is when they come and see you, they're in the midst of usually a big health challenge. Um, so we need to help them be more resilient. Um, so I guess that like having these three different areas are that that kind of levers that we can we can think about pulling is okay. What does this person need? Do they do we need that to to downregulate the negative a little bit? Can we upregulate the positive? And can we can we give them an opportunity for awe um, that's maybe not related to the problem that they've got at the moment, but can we get them to go and do their exercises while they're looking at a sunset, for example, yeah. or yeah. Um, yeah, or or go and um, go for a walk with with their friends along along the waterfront? Absolutely, yeah. I think this suggestion of combining um, the different strategies together is a wonderful one. So, like you are combining social connectedness and nature together. Right, so the reward pathway by going with a friend and then the default mode pathway by being out in nature. I think it's wonderful, especially since everybody is strapped for time. Like time is the one mm. thing no one has enough of. So um, this way you're getting more bang, bang for your minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that lack of time definitely upregulates the negative, I think, for me anyway. Um, yep. Gongnaz, did you have any other, anything else that you wanted to add before we sign off? Uh, no, I think we covered all the all the major points. I mean, okay. I, I, the one thing I, I I don't know if it, if it matters, but um, so these different these three networks do connect to each other as well, and they influence one another. Um, so uh, the picture is comp more complicated than what we said, but uh, it's good to know that even if you just do one thing, you're probably influencing the others as well. So, for instance, uh, stimulating reward the reward network has a effect of buffering stress. So it does reduce um, amygdala react or amygdala activity. So um, even if you can only do one thing, you're, you're probably helping yourself in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. Golnaz, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been, it's been amazing to have a conversation with you. Thank you. It was great chatting with you. This was fun. That is a wrap. Thanks everyone for tuning into the show. If you've enjoyed it, then make sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the weekly episodes. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to share this out with a mate that you reckon might enjoy it. And if you want to enhance your skills in this area even more, then watch out for the Art of Healthcare community coming in August 2021. It's a truly interdisciplinary space for us to upskill our art. If you want a sneak peek, for more info, head over to artofhealthcare.mn.co. That's artofhealthcare.mn.co. And a couple of quick thank yous. First of all, thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music. 
And thank you to you guys for joining me as we look to improve our art.